0: Man, I'm glad y'all showed up. Uh, we were trying to schedule volunteers this week, and it was like everybody was gone. Out of t- I just thought maybe I should be out of town, too. Like, I didn't know what memo I missed or where we were all going. So I'm just glad y'all are here. I was beginning to wonder. Um, but it's good to be uh, here. It's good to sing those truths over, um, man, just our lives and our family, and I'm grateful for them. Uh, I'm grateful for this passage. I don't think I've ever preached on John 3.16, strangely enough. Um, I just, you know, quoted a lot. It's, it's been cited in a lot of my sermons and a lot of other sermons. It's been written, you know, on signs, football games all over the world for years. Um, and so this is, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to sit in the context of this passage really for the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at uh, 19 through 21 next week with really a, a deeper look at this bizarre story that Jesus is going to point to us today with the serpent and really look at the um, why are we condemned, and what does it mean to be, a, 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 what is unbelief, and that unbelief is actually the root of all sins. So we're going to go there next week, so, so we're going to kind of uh, touch on some of that and, and kind of go big picture, and then we'll, we'll settle in even further next week. But um, here we, we have uh, John continuing this, this encounter with Nicodemus, and so if you were here with us last week, Nicodemus is a ruler, and he is rich, and he is, political, like, he is religiously prestigious, he's educated, he's a teacher of the law, he is, uh, he's wealthy, and he's in political power, right? He is, is, is a member of the, the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. And so uh, he comes to Jesus and, and sort of begins this conversation, not even really with a question, but Jesus, we are told, knows what's in a man. So Jesus calls him out and, and just really gets to the heart of what he's asking and, and starts to tell Nicodemus about how it's essential. Not like if you want to be born again, you can be you know, on the varsity team of Christianity, but if you want to see, enter, know anything about the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And, and he's talking to this guy, this guy who's a really good guy, a religious guy, a wealthy guy, a, uh, uh, an important influential guy, and he looks at him and says, you got to be born again. So th- the new birth, is something that's essential to become a Christian. It's not ascending to to Christianity just mentally um, hearing the information and going, okay, yes, I agree with that. It is, it is a new birth. It is scales falling off. It is being able to see things in a new way, getting new birth. And Nicodemus is a little confused about that, as is understandable, because we have some context for it. He didn't so much. He should have had more than what he, what he knew. And so Jesus pointed him back to Ezekiel. He pointed him back to this reality that Jesus is actually bringing to bear all of the promises, all of the movement of God throughout the Old Testament is finding its culmination in who Jesus is. And so that's, that's where we find ourselves. So we're picking up in the middle of this exchange in verse 9. Uh, Jesus has just told him, you got to be born again. And, and he's like, listen, you know, it, this is something that comes from the Spirit. People born of the flesh, that creates the flesh. The material world births the material world. We, we, we know a little bit about that. Still some mystery there, still some wonder there, but material world births the material world. Spirit births the spirit. It, it brings about a spiritual nature where we have eyes to see things of the spirit that we did not before. We have a sense about us where we're able to um, engage in the spiritual realm and in the world and understand those things. And so, and he said, the spirit's kind of like the wind. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from. You can't control it, but you can see its effects. Right? So this is the context. This is what Jesus has just told Nicodemus. And understandably, Nicodemus goes, how can this be? How can this be? And this is the question that he asked Jesus. And Jesus is a little bit confrontational with him because he says, listen, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? Like, because remember, he kind of came in with some posture. He says, Jesus, hey, this is back in verse um, 1. Uh, verse 2, he says, hey, Rabbi, we know that you've got to be from God, because nobody does what you're doing unless they're from God. So he's kind of saying, hey, you know, I'm representing this authoritative body, and, and we, we admit nobody does what you're doing without that. And so he's kind of got this posture, and so Jesus is kind of calling him on that, saying, you're, you're a teacher. You're, you under, you're, you're supposed to know the Word of God. People look to you to understand the Word of God. And you, you're not getting these things. You're, you're not understanding that. And so um, the first point that I want us to see um, is that the Bible has one big point. It has one main idea. And if we miss that, then the Bible is actually useless. Useless. That's a bold strategy, I, I, and, and you could say it's helpful for life. You could find some principles in it that you can apply, and, and that's true, but you can also find some wild things that you're like, I don't think I should apply that, right? Because you've got to read it in context. It's actually telling a story. This is so important. I was listening to a podcast this week about how you know some church nonsense stuff, and, and, and it was a non-Christian trying to interpret some, some things that had happened around a megachurch and some things that this megachurch was teaching and preaching. And they were looking at passages that, that um, you know, these people were saying we had been taught about marriage and about money. And they were going, this, this is, like, this makes no sense. This is 2023. This is not ancient. And, and, and they're not able to reconcile it because that's not how the Bible works. You don't just get to pull out a few principles, rules, and you know, and say, okay, let me, let me just apply these to my life and I'll become a better person. No, it has a big idea. It has a story. And Jesus says, listen, man, you're, you're a scholar, Nicodemus. You should know that the big idea of the Bible is that God loves his people. But his people have rebelled against him. And there is a great need for rescue. It's not just a little need. It's not like people are neutral, as we're going to see in a little bit. Jesus doesn't step into a neutral world where people need to be kind of swayed toward Jesus or they will choose to go away from Jesus. No, it comes into a a dead and damned and, and lost world. Nicodemus, you should know that this salvation is one that will require miraculous work from God. You shouldn't be surprised by the new birth. You should have been longing for it. You should have been desperately pleading for it because you realize Isaiah has been telling you for years that your righteousness is like filthy rags. Did you you miss that in your learning, Isaiah? That your righteousness, your following of the rules will not get you into right standing with God. This is what uh, has been the message throughout the Scripture, and and somehow Isaiah has missed it. Um, if you flip with me, just a couple pages um, to the right in John chapter five verse thirty-nine, we're going to see Jesus is going to call out these this this uh, this political this party that, that Nicodemus is from the Pharisees, and he's going to call them out again. And in verse thirty-nine, he says of, of chapter five, he says, "You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the big idea. The Bible has one big point, and guess what? It's about Jesus. Now, so many of us have, have been in, you know, Sunday school, and we've heard so many Old Testament stories, and maybe they've, and, and rightly so, like there's, those are good, but sometimes we, we just want to, like we'll tell the story of David, or we'll tell the story of Jacob, and we want to tie a moral lesson onto it. We've got to be careful. There are some moral lessons we can absolutely apply, but if we forget that they are all pointing us to Jesus then we have missed the big idea of the Bible. So I actually have no better tool to help you with this than this book right here. Jordan, it looks like a kid's book. Yeah, it is, but it's awesome. It's really helpful even for adults. So you might be like, I don't have kids. Go ahead and sneak one out. It's good. We got them in the back. I'm telling you, it's really rich. So I want to read how this starts, uh, if you would. This is helpful to this point. Uh, It says, this this is about the Bible. It says, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky. He wrote it on the earth, under the sea. His message is everywhere. And how the creation, you know, reveals itself. But he put it into words, too, and called it the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you—I feel like I should show you the (laughs) pictures—telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly has some rules in it. They show you how life works best. That's true. God's law, those rules, they're there to show you this is how life will go well. Do these things, and life will actually be good, that doesn't take common sense. We all know if we stop stealing from each other, life will be better, right? You stop envying your neighbor, coveting their stuff, life's going to go better. You, parents, we all know if our kids would listen to us, honor their father and mother, life would go better, right? Like, don't kill each other. Don't sleep with each other's spouses. Like, it's actually not rocket science. It's actually God saying, hey, guys, I designed life. This is how it should work. So the Bible's not mainly about rules, but it does have some in there, and they're about how life works best. But the Bible... Isn't mainly about what you should be doing. It's about what it's about God and what He has done. This is so good. Other people think the Bible's a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, as you'll find out, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some really big mistakes. Anybody read any of those? And you're like, I don't think I should be like Father Abraham. It's a shady move when he like offered his wife to the like that's weird, right? And and so you have to have these perspectives. It's not a hero held up for you to emulate exactly. It's pointing us to something else, right? Uh, And so they'll make some big mistakes. They'll get afraid. They'll run away. And at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one that he loves It's like the most wonderful fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of this story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, a piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you could see a beautiful picture. This is no ordinary baby. This is a child upon whom everything would depend. This is a child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where every good story starts, right at the beginning. And then it takes us back to creation. And so uh, I would encourage you, man, read this book, especially if you have kids, uh, even if you don't. It's helpful because it takes stories like David and Goliath, like Abraham, and it, tell, it helps you see very simply in children's words, how it points to Jesus. This is not infallible. This is not inerrant. It's not authoritative. This is a tool. It's helpful. Okay? This is what you want to submit to. Okay? But I think this is really helpful and helping you understand this. So uh, this, is, this is what Jesus is showing Nicodemus. It's like, hey, man, you've missed the big E on the eye chart. Cool that you can read all those little lines you got all your laws, you got all your exegesis about all these things, but you've missed the big point. Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? Basically, what is he saying? That you need a Savior. Not that you're mostly good, and you just need somebody to kind of push, you know, get, help you over. The, no, no, that you need a Savior. It's about... and. That that Savior is Jesus. That's what Jesus is going to call him out later. You read the Bible thinking that in it you'll find life. When you, bear to, you fail to see that it is bearing witness about me. So when you read the Bible, you should be seeing Jesus. You should be getting more in love with Jesus. If you're finding rules and principles only, they're there. Proverbs is full of principles and rules. They're, they're really, really helpful. Live by them. Life will go better. But if you're just doing that, and you're missing, if, you, if your Bible reading doesn't lead you to adoring Jesus, being reminded of your need for Jesus, and rejoicing that God has met your need by sending Jesus, then you're missing the point. So he goes on, and he says, listen, you should know these things. Verse 11, truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Okay, so... You've got to go back to the beginning of this interaction whenever Nicodemus comes up and uses this language of we. He says, we know that you must be of God because you do these miracles. Okay, Jesus is, because there's a lot of commentaries like, well, who's he talking about? He's talking about the disciples? He's talking about, when Jesus says we, who else is there? I think Jesus is just saying, hey, you said we know that, like when we speak, I'm speaking with an authority that is exclusive, okay? So Jesus is going to tell him, We speak of what we know. We're not speculating. We're not putting together pieces. Jesus is saying, This is, we are bearing witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. He goes on, verse 12 If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay? Um, He's saying, Listen, Nicodemus, it's like more explanation is not going to get you where you're trying to go. You remember back. In John chapter 1, uh, in the prologue, uh, John says that uh, he, Jesus comes to his world, but the world doesn't receive him. But to all who do receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. You remember that? Nicodemus is not one of those who has received Jesus. He is not one of those who has responded with the reception of Jesus, where he is submitting to Jesus and taking, you know, taking Jesus at his word. He's still trying to get to Jesus in another way he's not to Jesus he's trying to get to God's righteousness in another way and and, and Jesus goes listen man this is not a matter of intellectual understanding this is not a matter of argument and apologetics this is a matter about receiving or not rejecting or receiving I'm telling you what is true Jesus says and so a little bit more explanation is not going to be helpful and Jesus is going to go on to validate his authority and say listen you're about to find out who I am. Jesus has already made bold claims at the temple, right? Um, he, he's he's all, like John the Baptist has called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the great I Am. And he says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying? He's saying there's an, like, nobody but Jesus gets to tell us the truths, the deep truths about spiritual things and about life. G- there, listen, there, Jesus is absolutely exclusive. And there is there's there's debate in the world that people will talk about, well, how can Christian, how can God be loving? How can Christians be loving if they think that their God is the only way and all this? Listen, you need to know that God has so loved the world and He has made one way for men to be saved, and that is through Jesus. But it's not unloving. Jesus is saying nobody else gets to have the authority. People were gonna speculate. And they're going to tell you what is right and what is true. Other religions are going to come along. Buddha's going to write a book, right? Muhammad's going to write some things and say, this is what is true. No one gets to speak that because no one has been there. Everybody else is speculating about what the Logos is. You remember the Logos? Like, what holds the world together? Everybody else is speculating. Everybody else has just given you an idea, their best guess. They might claim that God has revealed this to them. They might claim that they're from God, but no one has been there. No one was there in the beginning. No, no one. Listen, so Jesus is going to say some things about your life. He's going to say some things that are true about how you get saved. You're going to bristle at them unless you know who's saying them. The one who is saying them, this is why John took so much. Uh, painstaking effort to unpack the beauty of who Jesus is in John chapter 1. So as we encounter passages like this, we don't, we don't begin to question, well, 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 I mean, how do we know that Jesus is the one? Jesus says, nobody can take these things except the one who has been in heaven, and none of y'all have been in heaven. Jesus says, the only one who could say these things is the one who came down from heaven. And I am here telling you these truths. So listen, here's the deal. Jesus stands above and over every other world religion, their leaders may make claims. They may say they're from God. They may say they have authority. But none of them said, I am God. And maybe he was a whack job. But now we have the empty grave we've got to deal with. Okay? Because those other guys, Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, guess what? There's a grave somewhere with them, with their remains in it. Right? They're they're merely humans speculating about a religion or ideas. Jesus says, No, no, I'm the one who's telling you I've come from heaven and I'm going back there. And that my resurrection will validate all of my claims. That's why we start with the resurrection. That's why when you see uh, you know from the temple passage after the disciples remember at his resurrection, they go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what he was saying. All the pieces start to fall into place when you see Jesus as the resurrected Lord. He has ultimate authority, and he has exclusive authority to say, how do we find eternal life? So it is not all roads lead to heaven. Oprah's wrong. Okay? It, we're not all just trying to get to the same place. It doesn't mean we shouldn't respect and, and love and, and treat each other kindly. Because that's part of her point. But it is unloving to pretend as though we're all on the same path. Jesus says we're not. Like, he is the only one who gets to say these things. So, man, he is absolutely exclusive. He's not one of the options. He's not one of the things. He is the only one. So, he's the only one that can say these things. So, does he just trump that, What's he going to do with Nicodemus then? Does he just say, listen, man, I don't know who you think you're arguing with, but I'm the only one who's there. This is a little bit of the Job. You remember how Job, like God wraps up the Job conversation? Job's got a lot of questions. How dare God? You know, a little bit. His friends got questions. How, how could you? And God wraps that up by saying, Hey, Job, you ever thought about the ocean? How, how'd you tell it where to stop? Well, that's right, you didn't. You weren't there. When I hung the stars in the sky, Job, you you weren't there. That was me. God reminds us by drawing our eyes upward. And this is Jesus saying, Nicodemus, brother, I was there. I put all this together. I'm not guessing, telling you what I know, telling you what is true. And it's a matter of receiving it or not. It's not a matter of explaining it any further. You're not receiving my testimony. You're not, this is the issue. So, what's he going to do with Nick? Is he going to leave it at that? Like, trump card, I win the argument? No, no. It's so beautiful because he's actually going to tell him how to be saved. He's not going to exchange the political back and forth. He's not going to, you know, debate these things. No, he's going to tell him how he actually can be born again. And he's going to do so by using a, a pretty bizarre story from Numbers chapter 21. So, verse 14 Jesus goes, right, I want to read this with 13, because this is a bit of a shift. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has, descend, who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's referring to himself, he's drawing on a, the Son of Man is, a, is, is uh, drawing on a, uh, a name from Daniel, right? He, and he's saying, this is, this is me, Jesus, is, that's his favorite name for himself, the Son of Man. So, and, and he says, and as Moses, so this all goes together in one thought, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, what in the world? Like, you lost me, Jesus. Like, I was hanging in there, okay, you're the authority. And just like Moses, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has to be lifted up. Like, we don't know, right? Well, let's, let's know. John or Numbers chapter 21, we'll look at it again uh, in, in a little bit more depth next week, but if you want to flip there with me or you just want to listen, it's actually a short passage. It's, it's bizarre because it's, it's not set up with a lot of context, it's... It's, uh, it's just a few verses, and then it moves right on. But this is the passage that Jesus chooses to use to illustrate who he is to Nicodemus. It's, it's incredible. Jesus is the greater Abraham. He is the greater David. He is the greater Moses. He delivers us from our sin. He is our king. All of those things. I don't think anybody expected him to talk about being the serpent from this story. It's a weird story. Numbers 21, the people of God have been rescued from Egypt they are now wandering in the in the wilderness. They've been doing that for a good while and they come to this place where they are frustrated. Verse 4 of Numbers 21. They from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, right? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? you imagine going through all that they've been through? you imagine all the rescue? But then it's very real. We'll look at this next week. It's, it's real. There's a lot of like, like actual struggle in, in their statements. But this is the people that have seen God bring the plagues. This is the people that walked through the Red Sea on dry land. This is the people that have seen God just make bread show up and make water come out of a rock. This is, these, this is the people. And they say, hey, hey uh, Moses. Like they're just like kids, right? Why'd you bring us out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness? Right? They've said before, was there not enough graves in Egypt? Was that God's deal? So had to bring us out here to die? That's not exactly what they say here, but why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. All right, how many of your kids are like, there's nothing to eat? Right? Well, there is. What about this and this? I don't want that. Well, don't say there's nothing to eat. I'm hungry. Then eat what we have. (laughs) So, listen. God responds harshly. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. People came to Moses, and they said, we've sinned. We've spoken against the the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the serpent and live. It's a bizarre story. We're going to dive deeper into that response from God later. But, but here's what you need to know God sends them a, a, a curse, a plague of snakes. S- some of y'all, this is like your worst nightmare. But it's real. Like they start biting people and they're dying. Like these are, these are not the friendly snakes. How many of you are that people? Like you should leave them. They're good. They're good for your yard. They're good, right? Some of y'all are like, I don't care. I. Its head is now detached between my shovel. They're biting them and dying. These are venomous, fiery snakes. I want you to notice a few things. The serpent, the the, the solution that God gives, it's not actually preventative. The serpent on the pole is not preventative. It is for bitten people. The curse, like God doesn't retract it. It's still, it's still just, it's still right, and he lets it be. Um, the poison is in them, and without divine intervention, they will die. Okay? You notice these things. The snakes in the camp, they're actually from God. He sent them. The wrath of God is on his people for their sin of ingratitude and murmuring and rebellion. The means that God chooses to rescue the people from his own curse is a picture of the curse itself. This is bizarre, isn't it? But then lastly, all all they have to do in order to be saved from God's wrath is look at the provision hanging on a pole. So, they're grumbling. This is not like the Bible says that God himself says um, to Moses, hey, this is who I am. I'm patient. Really, 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 really slow to anger. Long-suffering with you all. Okay, this was not a snap decision from God. He has shown these people time and time again that he will provide, that he has a plan for them, and they choose to respond with unbelief and grumbling and mumbling, and he sends a curse. They deserve it. They deserve it. So, what is the response to the curse? God sends them fiery serpents. Does this sound familiar? Back to Genesis 3. We'll look at this a little bit more in depth next week. Uh, but they've been bitten. They don't have antivenom, right? They don't have any way to stop. You think about the way that you die from a snake bite, that the poison enters your body, and it begins to slowly kill you from the inside out, right? And there's, there's without an antidote, without antivenom, there's really no way to prevent it. And that's the state of the people. And God responds to their curse by sending, having Moses put up an image or a picture of the very same thing that's killing them. The very picture of the curse is what is held up. This is a weird story, and it's this story that Jesus uses to unpack for Nicodemus who he is. Here's why. That story is a lot like holding up a mirror to our world. The reason that that Jesus is a little bit frustrated that Nicodemus didn't get it is because Nicodemus has minimized his own sin because he's been able to push himself up and feel righteous compared to everybody else. And Jesus says, you don't get it. You don't get it. Everybody is terminal. The wages of sin is death. I said back in Genesis 1 and 2 if you eat of this, if you sin against me, you will die. You don't get it. It's not just the really, really bad people who will die, it's all of you who will die. So, this picture from Numbers 21 is like holding up a mirror to the state of the world. We are all bitten by the curse of sin. We're all born into sin. We are all without hope. And, and our prognosis is 100% terminal. It will kill us. The wages of sin is death. That is why we die. You know, no one escapes it. It's the ultimate s- statistic. 10 out of 10 will die. Why does that happen? Because we are sinners. You can't make sense out of why some people die earlier. and This is it's not a karma situation. This is not a. no. no. We all will die. So, this is the state of the world that Jesus enters into. A world who has received the curse of sin because we earned it. We earned it. We're not going to go appeal to God as though we didn't deserve death. When we stand before God, we will 100% realize, oh yeah, we absolutely deserve death. I use this illustration a lot, but it's so helpful. Isaiah gets a vision of God. What does he realize? Oh, I deserve death. The world deserves death. This is the context that our most famous verse finds itself. Because what does God do about it? What does God do about a world that is terminal, that is dying, and is without hope? Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine your children being bit by snakes? Your family? You? Like, what do you do? There is panic. There is no solution. Somebody can be running around philosophizing about how we could, you know, deal with the snake bites, but guess what? Bodies just keep piling up because they're dying. There's no response. The world's got all kinds of ideas about how we should ascend into morality and how we can be good people and how we'll be accepted into heaven. The Bible says, no, no, bodies keep piling up in hell because we deserve to be there. This is the, the world that Jesus is sent into, and this is what makes the good news of John 3.16 such good news, church. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. It's great news, but you've got to keep going. Verse 17 says, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. And a lot of people want to stop there, right? you seen that meme? It's like, God didn't send Jesus into the world, so he probably didn't send you either, Karen. Right, like the character Karen, it's always pointing out what everybody does wrong. Like so a layoff. I'm like, eh, I get it. But there's a reason that Jesus didn't come in to condemn the world. Why? Got to keep reading. Always dangerous to read one verse and make some kind of post about it. Just saying. Or build a theology on it. There's a reason that he didn't condemn the world, but he came in order the world might be saved through him. Verse 18 here's why he didn't have to condemn. Because whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So what is he saying? He's saying everybody is already condemned. This is so important for us because when we start to have this posture of like, hey, man, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? You had those thoughts? Or you had those, the, the, the question presented to you? That question, starting there, wondering how God could choose to save some but not others, how could God send some to hell, like we're starting from the wrong perspective. We're starting as though we deserve something uh, from God, that we're entitled to something from God. It's a fundamental misunderstanding about the, the, the state of humanity. These verses are telling us basically that anyone who ends up in hell chose to go there. That that is our choice, that we are, are sinners by nature, that we have rebelled, we, we chose against God, and that we deserve the curse of sin. We deserve the wrath of God. And it says we are under it, period. Right? Um, whoever believes is not condemned, right? You, you trust in Jesus, that condemnation is removed from you. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. But it's not a neutral world and whoever gets on this side is good and and whoever gets on this side is bad. No, it's a condemned world altogether, period. It's a start from death across the board. It's a start from full condemnation. And now we have a different perspective, don't we? Because now it's not how could God send anyone to hell. Now it's how could God be so good to save any of us? You see how that's different and not what your natural, real, like, rational mind will present to you in a moralistic standpoint. Like, how could God send good people to hell? Well, there are no good people. We all deserve death. And it's not like he was watching and goes, up, oh, gotcha. You're going to die now. No, we're born into this plague, this curse of death. All of us are. Just like the snakes are not discriminating I don't, I, it doesn't, we have no evidence to say that the snakes bit the grumblers. Some of y'all, you know, you, you got a few people. You got a list, right? You, you, you could stand for God to pick a few people off. Like, that's not how it works. The snakes are just biting, and people are dying. The curse of sin has gotten us all, and our prognosis is terminal illness. We are headed Toward death. So, what, is, what does God do? He sends Moses. He says, make this, this serpent, this bronze serpent, the very thing that is biting them. Make an image of it and hold it up. So, so here's, here's what I think he wants us to begin to understand. And we'll look even further into it next week. Is that the world is, is fully condemned already. And that is not why Jesus came. Right? Like, Nicodemus and some of his buddies are like, yeah, man, I'm ready for the Messiah to come. And to validate our our righteousness and how good we've been high five us while he's on his way out there to condemn all those bad people and tell all those those sinners where they can go right that's kind of nicodemus's posture thinking man when the messiah comes like we get to be on his team he he's going to he's going to you know bring about some vindication for us jesus goes no no god didn't send me to condemn the world i'm not coming with an army the world's already condemned. Why did He send him? So that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish. You see, the picture is a snake-bitten human who, if they don't get an anecdote, is going to die. That's the picture. And Jesus says, that's the state of humanity. They're going to die. You. You. Nicodemus, he's a good guy. He's a religious guy. Pretty favorable toward Jesus. Pretty nuanced, pretty level-headed. I think we'd want Nicodemus in our government, frankly. He's got a good head on his shoulders. You, Nicodemus, have a terminal prognosis. You're going to die unless someone comes with an anecdote, unless someone does something. And in the chaos of everybody running around trying to figure out what to be done, They come and admit, man, Moses, we messed up. We were grumbling against you. We sinned against God. Will you pray to him so that he'll forgive us? And into that world of chaos and running around trying to figure out how to be righteous, how to be saved, that is the world that God loves so much that he sent Jesus into it so that we who were terminally ill, we who deserved death, would not perish, could have everlasting, unending, eternal life. This is incredible. So, the snake is, is the very thing that's biting them, but it's also the thing that's going to save them, just by looking at it. Here's the deal. You need to know that Jesus coming into the world is both a blessing and a curse. For those who do not believe in him, he's going to reveal their unrighteousness. And the wrath of God is very much on display, just as much as the grace and truth. Like, for grace and truth to be on display, Jesus is the very source of the curse. He is the very reason that we have to die because he is a righteous God. And yet it is the very essence, the, the very same thing that brings about the, the judgment and the wrath is also the thing that can bring about our salvation. Jesus is in the place of the snake, portrayed as evil and as a curse. This is shocking. The snake is evil. Snake, like, no, none of y'all want Jesus to be compared to a snake, right? They're, they're evil. They're, they're killing people. The snake is on a pole. It's the picture of God's purse, curse on the people, and so it was with Jesus. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 2, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And in becoming like the snake, he was the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of our curse. And in becoming sin and curse for us, he took our sins away. So this is God's response. This is what Nicodemus is saying. Hey, just like in the desert when the people had no hope, Because of their their sin, God sent judgment. Moses held up a bronze serpent. Just like that, the Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up. Because he is the same one that will consume all the evil. And all, like, you understand, Revelation Jesus shows up with righteous judgment. Sword out of his mouth, fire in his eyes. And he will consume all sinners. Like, He will banish them to hell. He will absolutely get rid of all the evil. But that same Jesus, who is righteous and justice of God, will be fully upheld in him. That same Jesus is going to allow himself to be lifted up on a cross. So that, imagine the people bitten by snakes. The the solution is, lift your eyes. Look at the bronze serpent, and they'll live. And then the story just goes on in Numbers. It's weird. It's crazy. But Jesus uses this to tell Nicodemus, the Son of Man's got to be lifted up in the same way. Lifted up on the cross. There, as a a full display of what our sin has cost us, what we deserve, what we have earned, there it is. Death on a cross. Body broken, blood spilled out. There's Jesus on a cross. And Jesus says, so the Son of Man might be, must be lifted up so that all who would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. So, Nicodemus, it's not so much about an explanation but about seeing and believing. The way that the people bitten by snakes had to look up and see the broad serpent to be saved, we have to look up and see Jesus on the cross to be saved. So I'm going to close with a story of the salvation of a famous preacher named Charles Spurgeon. I think it illustrates this well. I think he was around 16 or so in his life. Uh, it was January 6th. He remembers it, 1850. Uh, he was not quite 16 years old. And this is him telling the story um, in his biography written about him. This is telling the story of how Charles Haddon Spurgeon became... A Christian, he says. He says, I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a primitive Methodist church. And in that chapel, there may have been a dozen or fifteen people. The minister didn't come that morning; he was snowed up, I suppose. So he's headed to one church. Snow's so bad, he can't go any further, so he goes to the closest little Methodist church. Not even the preacher's able to show up. There's just a few people. And he goes, a thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his, tw- stick to his text for a simple reason that he had little else to say. The text said, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, he said, but that didn't matter. There was, I or there was I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't need not be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are here looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You will find never any comfort in yourself. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look to me. Some of you say, well, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ The text says, look to me, look unto me. The grace of the new birth is seeing Christ lifted up. Then the man, the good man followed up his text in this way. He says, look unto me. I am sweating the great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. Spurgeon goes on to say, when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And dare I say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. How many of y'all have been that person that's the only new person in a little country church? And they're singing just as I am, hoping somebody will come. And you're like, I guess it's me. Everybody else seems to be in. That was me as a kid. I get it. So he's the new guy. Just a few people there. This guy looks up at him. And he says, young man, you look very miserable. He goes, well, I did, but not been accustomed to having remarks made like that from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right at home. He continued, he says, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, in this moment, you will be saved. And in lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. He says, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. I don't know what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it, but I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. He'd come into the church ready to do 50 things to get salvation. But when I heard that one word, look, what a charming word it seemed to be. Oh, I looked until I could almost look my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. That's new birth. And, and at that moment, I saw the sun. And he said, I could have risen in that instance. And I, it sung with the most enthusiastic of them. Oh, the precious blood of Christ. And the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, Ere since, by faith, I saw the stream. Thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die. It's from Spurgeon's autobiography. Listen, there was no greater need on this earth than for man to be absolved of our guilt, to be like to have the wrath of God dealt with on our behalf. God responds to that need with no greater gift than his very son. So the the greatest of all needs is met with the greatest of all gifts. And this is the greatest of all loves. This is how God has loved the world. While we were still sinners, he died for us. This is how God loved the world. That whoever would believe in Jesus wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Look to him. Don't put your head back down. I know I got to get sober. I know I got to do this. I know I got I to learn this. I got to read. No, no. Look to him. See Jesus on the cross. And church, if you're here and you're a Christian and that doesn't stir you to want to sing and stir you to be overfilled with joy, maybe you need to sit in this text a little bit longer and ask yourself, like Jesus asking Nicodemus, have you been born again? we should be overwhelmed with joy that our God has loved us so richly. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us so. Thank you for presenting to us a crucificted crucificted Christ that has done the work has died our death. Crucified on our behalf. Standing inviting us to come. Only you can reveal the true power and beauty in that. And I pray that you would do that sort of work this morning in this space. To those that don't yet know you, I pray that they would look for the first time and that they would be saved. For the rest of us, may we never get over it. May we never get over Your love for us, displayed in Jesus on the cross.